Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together and study your word. We just ask that you would open our eyes and that you would speak to us as we look into your word today. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so for the last couple of weeks, Pastor Dan's been talking out of Matthew 24, 25, talking about weird stuff, right? I mean, let's be honest, it's weird stuff, okay? So what I want to talk about today is help. There are weird things in my Bible, okay? What you've learned over the last few weeks is we do not protect you from your Bible here. We will teach what's in it, no matter what it is. So that's what you've been hearing the last several weeks. So as we take a look at the scriptures today, and specifically we're going to look at Psalm 82, uh, and we're going to be talking about the unseen realm, the spiritual realm, uh, and find out how really real it is. And as we dig into it, we'll find out that, hey, now I'm reading my Bible for the very first time, again, because it, it just opens things up when you understand what the scriptures actually are telling us. And then the Holy Spirit, once he grabs a hold of us as we study his word, then we have to change. And I don't know about you, that's hard, okay? So anyway, for the last several weeks, Pastor Dan's talked about, let's see, Nephilim, right? Divine beings cohabiting with human women and having these Nephilim, these giants, right? That was in Genesis 6. He's talked about genetic manipulation, transhumanism, and a rapture of the church, the sudden disappearance of all believers, and on Wednesday nights, I've been talking about demon possession, and believe it or not, and we're in the book of Daniel, and we actually talked about UFOs. So, yeah, there's weird stuff, okay? And some of this is actually in the Word of God, and you have to start digging through it and seeing what's there. So, by the way, it's all true, too, the weird stuff is. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. So what we're going to dig into is a little bit more about that realm today, uh, by the way, if you're interested in doing additional study after we're done, we do have a book available for you by Mike Heiser. It's uh, called Supernatural. Normally goes for $16.95. We have it for $10, and we're going to use the proceeds for the uh, new center that we're building. And if you're really into it, uh, we just finished studying the Unseen Realm for 25 weeks uh, on Wednesday nights. We have those CDs available if you're interested, uh, as well as all the notes. My notes are a little more extensive than what you have. Normally they run about 5,000 words each, so there's a lot of stuff in there if you're interested. But imagine you're, you, you know there's something going on in the world. You're standing on a battlefield, and you see that there's a battle going on, but you can't quite perceive what it is. We see hints of it in the Word of God all the time. But it, it's raging all around us. We know it. We can perceive it, but not directly, because the combatants in this war are supernatural. And occasionally we get drug into it, uh, but we also see some of the impacts of it in the world around us on a regular basis. On one side, you have the creator of the universe, God. He's also known in the Old Testament as Yahweh. And on the other side, you have evil, malevolent intelligences, divine beings who are in rebellion, who want nothing more than our destruction. That's the battlefield, and that's reality. That's what's going on. And if you accept this supernatural aspect of Scripture, some of the weird stuff in the Bible stops being weird, and you start feeling like you're reading your Bible for the first time. When I went to Bible school, they went out of their way to kind of take some of the supernatural out of the Scriptures, but the more I studied it in the original languages, I had to put it back in. Because the original language did not say what they were telling me it actually meant. 
you know, we're told in the scriptures the supernatural aspects of the battle, but you and I tend to discount it because you know, it's the 21st century. We have been raised in a society that is scientific-based, kind of like, it's almost like we're all from Missouri, you know, show me, you know, prove it. Uh, it it's, we're, we're a generation of rationalists, okay? We either discount the supernatural completely, well, no, not completely. We have to accept the fact that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead. I mean, to be a believer, you have to, to believe some of that stuff. But there's other things we just go, that's too weird, I'm not going to study it. And we push it off to the side. Here at Calvary, we study it, okay? So that's why we're going to look at Psalm 82 today. Mm, you're going to have to look long and hard to find anybody who really wants to teach that, okay? Many of us, we filter the Bible, though, through what we've learned over the years. Now, again, we can accept the things that you're supposed to accept as a believer, but when you get down to it and you start reading the Bible, it's got weird things in it. It just does. It asks us to believe, and some of these things that we're asked to believe are difficult. We're going to hit a couple of those this morning. But we tend to take some of these things and say, oh, that's a natural event. You know? And I've actually read people try to, to explain away the crossing of the Red Sea as a natural event. Yeah, I wish you the best on that. I don't think the entire army of Pharaoh drowned in four inches of water. Okay, so just saying. Uh, we take answers that are more in tune with science, even though this is a supernatural book, and when you understand that this book contains 66 additional books in it, all written by 40 authors over a 2,000-year period, and it tells one story. You think that's not real? You think that's, not a, that's a little unusual? I mean, I, stop and think about that. It's, it's a unified message. So... Let me ask this question. Does God really need us to spread his word on planet Earth, or he, could he do it by himself? He could do it by himself, right? All you have to do is show up in the heavens and say, accept or you know, turn or burn. It's kind of straightforward, but uh, he could do that, but he doesn't. He chooses to use us. And quite honestly, knowing me, I don't know if I would do that. Okay? I'm glad he does. Gives me something to do. But if he didn't, you know, he could do it himself. And in, in the book of Revelation, you actually see some of that. Now, the same is with the heavenly host. Does he really need to have a heavenly host and have angels come and deliver messages to Daniel and deliver? No, he could, he could show up himself, and he did to Abraham. He showed up himself. He showed up in the burning bush and talked to Moses. He showed up He's done that several times, but he chooses to use divine beings because that's part of his family, just as he chooses to choose humans. We're part of his family. We were all created by him. So, you know, as we look at God's word, there's things we're going to have to learn, and we're going to have to reread the Bible, looking at it from the mindset of someone who is a Jew living in 500 B.C., that's not easy, or a Jew living in 30 A.D., that's not easy either. We can't impose our mindset, our, our scientific mindset, our doctrines and all that on it, we have to say, what does the Bible really say? What does it mean? That's called scriptural context. Pastor Dan's talked a little bit about that as well. What was their understanding of the world, spiritual and physical? How did they interact? How did it work? How heavy was their world skewed towards the supernatural? You know, I mean, okay, Abraham gets a visit by the pre-incarnate Christ and an angel. And he acts like it just happens all the time. Could I do that? Probably not. And by the way, what was it that kept Israel going back to these dumb statues? 
Weren't they just statues? No, we're going to find out there's something behind those statues. And that's what they were going back to. Now, in the scripture, we have several instances that you would immediately say, that's a little weird. The first one's in the book of Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel is a time traveler. He really is. So is John. They both were taken by God and pulled out of one time line and dropped into another. Ezekiel actually is dropped into the millennium, and he sees the temple that is going to be used during the millennial reign of Christ. And then he's pulled back over. And he actually gets a view where the throne of God comes down to him, and he's trying to explain a multi-dimensional apparition in three dimensions, having the mind of a person living in the 5th century B.C., which is predominantly agrarian, he can't explain it. He's never seen Star Wars. Okay? If he'd seen Star Wars, he could explain it real easily. But that's what he's trying to explain. And he, he sees divine beings, he introduces us to throne guardians. It, it's in Ezekiel 1, okay? verse 5. Within it, and he's talking about the throne, within it there were figures resembling four living beings. So he's trying to describe this to us. And he's trying to describe cherubim, okay? He's trying to describe to us what a cherub looks like. And you're going to find out they're not naked flying babies when, when we get through this. This was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof. And they gleamed like burnished bronze, which is a typical uh, idiom that's used in the scripture of someone who is a divine origin. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. And as for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward, and as for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right, the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spreading out above. They had two touching another being and two touching their bodies. That's a cherubim, okay? A multidimensional being that lives in the spiritual realm being described by someone in a three-dimensional realm. It's kind of hard to describe. Isaiah had a similar audience, but he didn't see the same thing. He saw something else. The throne room didn't come to him. He went to the throne room. It's in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the, king of Uz in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, another being. We, we saw cherubim, now we've seen seraphim. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. There it is, the Lord of hosts. He's actually in that throne room, and he sees all the hosts who are there. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Interesting discussions, but we get more in the New Testament. Paul, who had the essential background of a double doctorate, okay, not a dumb guy, uh, he gave us a view of that world in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. And he's telling us first to be strong in the Lord, but then he starts giving us why we need to be strong in the Lord. He starts talking about this war. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Okay, yeah, you know, we all think of devils and demons as making us sin. Quite honestly, they don't. I do fine on my own. I don't need their help. Okay, and I'm sure we're all the same way. But they can whisper things to us and kind of get us to go other different directions. But here's, what, here's the key. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He's using present tense, not past. But against rulers. This is a job description of a divine being. Some of them are rulers. Against the powers. Okay? That's another job description. Against the world forces of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. He starts giving us job descriptions of fallen divine beings who are no longer being faithful to Yahweh. They're not following God. They're not following Jesus Christ. They're, not, they're, they're in rebellion. They are in rebellion. He outlines this reality of a spiritual world for us, and he says it's real and it exists. And by the way, it still exists today. Sometimes we discount it. Oh, that's the Bible. That's back then. No, it, 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 it goes on today, too. Okay? I anticipate that some of the things we see in God's Word from time to time challenge us, challenges me, I'm supposed to believe this? Yeah, you're supposed to believe this is in God's word. I'll even go and check the original languages. Yep, still there. You know, I, I'm hoping that if I look at it in the Greek or in the Hebrew, it won't be there anymore. Nope, still there. Um, so as we read God's word and understand it and rely on him, we find out that there's a reality of this unseen world. It really exists. So let's see if we can have the text kind of talk to us here. Okay, Let's talk about the heavenly host. That's what Psalm 82 is talking about. The term heavenly host shows up in the scriptures 70 times in the Old Testament. 70 times we find out there's a heavenly host, that God is the God of the heavenly host. I used to read that and go, okay, yeah, there are angels. Well, that angel's a job description. There's other beings there. We found out there's cherubim, there's seraphim, there's all these different things. Genesis 2.1, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. He's talking about creating the spiritual world and the physical world. And he created everything in them. So you have the spiritual world with spiritual beings living in it. They're called Elohim. And we have, spiritual, and we have non-spiritual beings. Well, we're spiritual, but we're physical. We're called humans. He created all of it. He populated both. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. There's a bunch of folks there. Okay? Some are faithful, some are not. Here on planet Earth, are we all faithful? No. Some of us are, and then there are those who have chosen not to believe. They aren't. So you have the same thing. The only difference we'll find out is that for a divine being, when they rebel, it's a permanent deal. Okay? For us here on planet Earth, we have the opportunity to repent and return to the Lord, or or come to him the first time. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. You alone are the Lord, and you've made the heavens. Then Nehemiah goes on. The heaven of heavens with all their host. So he's talking about that again. And the earth, and that's all that's on it. The seas, and it's all that's in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. So Nehemiah is seeing this room filled with all these divine beings bowing before the Lord. We get a sense of what that really is in a really weird section of Scripture in 1 Kings. 
in 1 Kings, we have King Ahab who wants to go to war. And he's just had all these prophets show up in his, in his uh, office with the king of uh, Israel and Judah there at the same time. And all these prophets have said, hey, yeah, go do it. And he finally says, no, I want a real prophet. That's what the king of Israel, uh, Judah, asks for. So a guy by the name of Micaiah comes in, and we pick it up in chapter 22 of verse 19. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. So he sees the throne room with this council in front of him, all of them there. We'll find, and if you listen to the study, one of the hallmarks of being a prophet is you have been before the divine council. All of them have been. So he sees the heavenly host standing beside him on his right and on his left, and the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? So he's talking to them, saying, Okay, guys, you got any ideas as to how we can make this guy go down? And one said one thing, and another before, and another said another. So you get the idea that they're throwing ideas at, at the Lord. Hey, well, we could do this, or we could do this. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I'm going to go out, and it will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him, you shall succeed, go out and do so. Am I the only one that thinks that's weird? No. It's in the Bible. There's, there's a decision being made, and the divine beings are participating in a decision with the God of the universe. The same that we are asked to participate with him here on planet Earth to spread his, his word. God created everything. And when we read that, we usually only think of the physical realm. But he also created a spiritual realm as well. And there are members of the divine realm and the earthly realm who are in rebellion. And by the way, we feel those results every day. Every day. I mean, all you have to do is go out and drive on I-95 and you'll get that sense that somebody's in rebellion someplace. <laughs> For the divine realm, though, they have a promise. Those who are in rebellion, they have a promise, and it's in Psalm 82. Okay, So Psalm 82 is written to those who are in the divine realm who are in rebellion against God. God has taken his place in the divine council. And depending upon what translation you have, if you're reading New American Standard, you'll see that it, it, it says rulers. Uh, in the ESV it says gods. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, the Hebrew word there is Elohim, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly? This is God talking to these fallen uh, divine beings. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. Again, the term is Elohim. You are spirit beings. Sons of the Most High. Benaiha Elohim is the word there. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. I want to take a look at a couple of the terms that are in there, because as you look at it, that's going, I mean, it, that seems a little weird when you read it. 
But I want to look at some of the terms in the Hebrew. So in the Hebrew, you see the term uh, sod. It's mentioned 23 times in the Bible. And it always means council or assembly. And it tends to always mean one that is of divine origin. But it, it means a council. So that's consistent. We've got that. Not a problem. Now, in the Hebrew, there are no vowels. There's pointing to what there is, but when this was written, there were no vowels and there was no pointing. So you had to determine where that word was and what it was based on the other forms of language around it. So the first time you see Elohim, which is a plural word, it's used as in a singular perspective, so it's God. It, we know that's God. But when we see Elohim show up again, we see other words with it that are plural. So he's talking about the other beings that lived there, that he created. And, 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 and you see that within, as you start looking at the specific language, you see that. And you, and you see specifically that there's this council of divine beings. By the way, they're referenced again in Psalm 89, verses 5 to 7, and there we're told they're in the heavens. Because when I went to Bible school, I was told that this council was actually a bunch of rulers in Israel, and they were men. And the more I studied the original language, the more I came to the conclusion that's not the case. It just isn't. It's not consistent in terms of the definition of Elohim as you follow it all the way through the Bible. So I concluded that God has a council. He has a heavenly host. The council consists of the heavenly host. These are divine beings that he created. And saying that they're all angels, I... I, I, I because we've seen other titles used, cherubim, seraphim, all that, that may be an incorrect title. Angel is a job description. It means messenger in the Hebrew. It means messenger in the Greek. In the New Testament, they tend to always just say angel, angel, angel. In the Old Testament, they start giving you these different names. But, and, and there's specific lines of divine beings. That, 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 we already know that. Remember, we saw that in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6. There's Different kinds, different, different types. There's a cherubim, there's a seraphim, there's actually an onephium. There's, I mean, there's, these are referenced in the scriptures. We saw that even Paul started going through different job descriptions. The bottom line is, is here in Psalm 82, we have an indictment, and they've been failures. There is a group of them that failed. They flat out failed. Um, and God is holding them accountable for that failure. We see here in Psalm 82 that God, Yahweh, is talking to his divine counsel. Now, Yahweh is a spirit being too, which means he is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is like Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of the universe. He created everything. Jesus Christ is also Yahweh. He's concluded with that as well. And in fact, the Old Testament He's all over the Old Testament, if you know what you're looking at within the original language. Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. Psalm 95.3, the Lord, Yahweh, is a great God, Elohim, and a great king above all, Elohim, gods. That's in Psalm 95.3. Daniel 4.35, now, this is the amazing thing about Daniel chapter 4. It's written by Nebuchadnezzar who is a Gentile, who came to know Yahweh as a result of Daniel interacting with him over the course of about 30 to 40 years. And after he became a madman, he came to Yahweh. And this is written by him. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he, talking about God, does according to his will 
in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have I done, or what have you done? He had an encounter with a group called watchers, who were also divine beings. What we see here, though, in chapter 82, getting back to the text, it's an indictment against those Elohim, those divine beings, those beings who are part of the divine council, the heavenly host. They're not following God's law. They're doing their own thing. They have free will. So do we. They made a choice. And we have the same opportunity. We see in the book of Daniel another hint of this war that's going on and the fact that there are divine beings. There's an interchange that takes place between an angel whose name is Gabriel and Daniel about what's going on behind the scenes. It's in Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. Now, Daniel's been praying for 21 days. He's been looking for an answer, and then the angel finally shows up and kind of blows Daniel away right in the middle of his prayer. And this is what Gabriel has to say. And he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I've come in response to your words. Now he's going to tell us why it took 21 days. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Okay, he's not talking about a human being. He's talking about a divine being who's been assigned authority over Persia. Now, I'm not going to get into all the background for that. I, I think it took me like three sessions to get into that. We're talking about three different rebellions in the book of Genesis. There's a rebellion in Genesis 3, one in Genesis 6, and one in Genesis 11, and it ties into a worldview that the Jews had that's in Deuteronomy 32. All that ties together, and if you get the CDs, it's, we cover that. But, but suffice it to say, the prince of Persia is a fallen divine being. It's somebody who's doing his own thing. And the thing that yeah, we have to remember, yes, this is a historical incident taking place around 500 B.C., but that prince of Persia is still the prince of Persia today. Why do you think there's problems in the Middle East? These same divine beings are whispering in the ears of earthly rulers today. They're still as rebellious now as they were then. Now, there's more in this when you go on. Now, Michael's one angel. Michael, uh, who is going to come and help Gabriel, Michael, one of the chief princes. Now, Michael is an archangel. He's a chief prince. So you have Gabriel fighting off this, apparently this uh, one divine being. And then Michael shows up to help him. And here's a kicker. For I've been left there with the kings of Persia. What? It's more than one divine being. You know, it's not a fair fight. Gabriel's fighting off a whole, whole gang of fallen divine beings, and they had to call in the special forces in the person of an archangel. You know, you know who an archangel is, right? They're, they're the super angels. I, I envision them as kind of like the special forces of the Bible. Uh, whenever God needs something done that's really important, they show up. And when they show up, you know, I, I don't know how many tats they have on each arm, uh, but they, they're kind of tough, tough dudes. He had to have help. And Michael held him off all by himself so that Gabriel could go down and deliver the message. Now, back as we continue on in the book of Daniel, in verse 20, Gabriel asks Daniel, do you understand why I came to you? So this, this is all about the message that he delivered. But I shall now return to fight 
against the prince of Persia. There's that war again. He's fighting someone. I'm going to go fight the prince of Persia. And so I'm going to go forth. And behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. What? You know, we're finding out there's a whole group of these things out there. And there's one in charge of Greece. There's one in charge of Persia. There's probably one in charge of the United States. There's probably one in charge of North Korea who's uh, crazier than a loon. There's, you know, it just, they're, they're all over. But he says, there's no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So there's two of them standing against this group uh, out there. So back to chapter 82. This is an indictment. And the indictment, like any criminal indictment, has some elements to it. And there's four elements to this one. The first one is they are accused of unjust judgment. So they're doing things they weren't supposed to be doing. They were not given that authority. They assumed it. In fact, they not only assumed that, some of them demanded worship. There's one whose name was Baal. He demanded worship. And his name keeps changing and changing and changing. At one point, there's another one whose name is Sin. He's located in Saudi Arabia. Today he goes by the name of Allah. Okay? So, I mean, that's what these guys do. They're trying to draw people and draw worship to themselves rather than to the true God of the universe, their creator, just like he's our creator. So unjust judgment. Number two, here in 82, it says there's favoritism to the wicked. So it, it, they, they look to the wicked and give them favors. They don't care if you're righteous. They want to destroy us, but they'll take care of the wicked. There's no justice. That's the third point of the indictment. And the fourth is they don't defend those who had no means of a defense. In the Middle East, a person who did not have a defense was an individual who could not defend themselves due to age or infirmity. They were widows. Uh, they were children. Basically what he's saying is you're going out of your way to destroy them rather than to protect them. And, and this is the indictment. Now, it sounds really bad about this group, but this group is going to be replaced. The Bible's all about that. And I want to let you see who that group is going to be that replaces them. It's in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now remember in chapter 82, it said they are benai Elohim, sons of God. That means a direct creation of God. We are benai Adam, we are sons of Adam. Adam was a benai Elohim, sons and daughters of Adam. Adam was a direct creation of God. We aren't. We're along, we have the same nature that Adam and Eve had, a sin nature. Uh, but here in Romans we find out that those who are being led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God, which means if we've given our life to Jesus Christ, we are now benai Elohim. We are adopted. He says that here. You have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies that with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Where's Christ? He's at the right hand of the Father. Where are we going to be? With Christ. What does that mean? We're replacing the divine council. We're going to be there in front of the throne all the time with Jesus. That's what it says. And indeed, if we suffer him, so we also may be glorified with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a little bit more. And Paul throws another thing out that a lot of people put in the category of, this is weird. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Say what? We're going to judge the world? That's what he's saying, okay? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Then he throws another one out there. 
do you not know that we will judge angels? What? Those divine beings who are in rebellion, when they get thoroughly replaced at the end of the age, guess who's going to be participating in their judgment, which is already outlined in chapter 82. Believers will be participating in that. You all have, as believers in Jesus Christ, jobs that are going to be filled. And there are roles that we will all be doing in, in the future. That's what this is pointing to. It's clearly pointing to that. Revelation 4.4 shows us the fact that there are thrones, 24 thrones. This is after the rapture. We're seeing the divine council, and now it's 24 elders, which could be the church. churches is what we're looking at. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 25 to 28, Jesus speaking, says, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds till the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. We're going to be replacing those corrupt divine beings who have that authority now. That's what this is saying. He shall rule with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. And in Revelation 3, 20-21, talking to the Laodicean church, the last day's church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, here it is, I will grant him to, be, to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. As believers, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's telling us, as believers in Jesus Christ, what we have in our future. We have a job multiple jobs. We're going to be replacing a group of corrupt divine beings. Not all of them are corrupt, but we're going to be replacing them. That was the idea all along. God wanted his heavenly family and his earthly family to live together in a place called Eden. And the Bible's all about getting back to that. And you see at the end of the book that that happens again. The divine beings and the earthly beings, we're all here together, worshiping and serving the Lord. The problem was there were some guys who saw that, said, hey, this kind of threatens us, let's rebel, and then you have Genesis 3, and some guy by the name of Lucifer starts tempting, and it just goes downhill from there. But that's what the goal is. He wants to have us back together again as his family. So we have an appointment, you and I, as believers. God has new members he needs to fill his council with, as joint heirs with Christ. He's at the right hand of the Father. It says that in Hebrews 12 too. I've said it several times. But we have a job waiting for us. God's original intent, again, was to have his family of Elohim, divine beings, and humans be with him for all eternity. Now, Elohim also includes, because the Bible says this too, and it's another weird verse, when Samuel is called up by the witch of Endor, he's referred to as an Elohim. He's a spirit being now. That's kind of interesting too when you take a look at that. So back to Psalm 82. We saw the indictment here in 82. And we also see in verse 5, the divine counsel is inept, those that have been corrupted. They have neither knowledge or understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. They're corrupt. Again, we're talking about benign Elohim. These are direct creations of God in the Old Testament. Adam was a benign Elohim. 
And as believers in Jesus Christ, as it says in Galatians 3.26, you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The moment we give our life to Christ, we become direct creations of God. We are changed. And, and we don't have the understanding of what that change truly means. But it is a huge change. Huge. And it's in the present tense. God acts like it's already happened, but not yet. The Bible has that tension in it all throughout. The bottom line, these divine beings who have blown it are judged. We're going to participate in that. They will experience death, as it says in the end of 82, verse 8, you are God's sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you will die. What he's saying is they're going to experience death just as human beings who do not accept Christ will experience death. That is eternal separation from Jesus Christ and from God. All eternity, they will be separated from their Creator, the one that they have seen and worked around on a regular daily basis. We haven't. They have. That's why they have no hope of repentance. We do. They don't. But they're going to experience the same thing that human beings who do not repent will experience, and that's eternal separation from God. For you and me, uh, as believers, we've already made the decision, hey, I don't want to rebel anymore, I'm going to stop, I give my trust and faith in Jesus Christ. By the way, rebellion in the New Testament is called sin. And we've all participated in that at one level or another. It says that in Romans 3.23. says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. But Christ solved the problem for us personally. He took care of that so that we didn't have to be in rebellion anymore. We don't have to be like those fallen divine beings sent with no hope. We have hope, and it's Jesus Christ. It says in Romans 5, 6, while we were yet helpless, still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He took care of it for us. The answer is simple. It's real simple. If, we, if, you, if you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus, but you want, you're saying, hey, I'm concerned about this rebellion thing. I don't want to go where those fallen angels are going. It's simple. It's in Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's that simple. It's not hard. You don't have to pray something 15 times and use a bunch of beads. It's not necessary. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, for those of us who are believers and have found ourselves in a rebellious situation, it's simple as well. Again, you don't have to use a bunch of beads. You don't have to say something 15 different times. You don't have to go do something. 1 John 1, 9, the Christian bar of soap. If you haven't underlined it in your Bible, underline it. I think it's in yellow in mine. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's it. You know, all you have to do is just say, Lord, forgive me. Bam. You're back in relationship. Now, the, the key is we have to grow and become more like him. That's hard to do. That's called letting the Holy Spirit control us rather than me control me. But that's, that's the challenge. So for us, as we take a look at this, the challenge is real simple. Do I want to remain in rebellion, or do I want to be not in rebellion? And by the way, i got a job lined up. There's a bunch of openings out there, and he's still looking for people to fill those jobs. Okay, 
Not much of an interview connected with it. The interview is real simple. Just believe what he said. That's it. That's all you got to do. So as I look at it, you know, the, the, the issue that we have is that it's a supernatural perspective that we need to have to the scriptures, absolutely. But the solution is also supernatural in origin, but it can get down to where we really live every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you hold divine beings accountable as well as you hold human beings accountable. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that unlike the divine beings who are in rebellion, we have an out through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have supplied the method and the means for us to be saved. And Lord, it's just amazing that it's so simple and so easy. For those of you who don't know Jesus, just pray after me. Lord, forgive me. You are Lord. You are Savior. I accept you as such. Come into my heart. That's it. There's nothing you have to do. For those of you who, have re- who, who are believers and feel like you're in, your, you're in rebellion, just confess your sin to the Lord and, and repent. Lord, we, we just do that as a, as a church. We come to you and uh, we, we repent of our sin. We want to be walking with you. We want to be your voice to this generation. We want to be your servants. Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. For those who have just given their life to you, Lord, we just ask that you would continue to help them to grow and that they would walk closely with you as they, continue, as they now learn what it means to not be in rebellion. Thank you for this time, Lord. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.